Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners and thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you could join me for this new episode where we look into the iconic story of a purported UFO crash and recovery of alien bodies at Roswell, New Mexico. This is the podcast's first two-part story, and I'm excited to present it to you. In part one, we look at what actually occurred in 1947, both what the military reported and the counter-story by ufologists. You'll have to start considering what you believe. In part two, we'll look exclusively at what witnesses say happened and also see why skeptics discount those testimonies and recollections. But before we start, as a reminder, please be sure to take a look at the podcast Facebook page. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes with answers given during the next episode, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. Now, on to our episode. This is the quintessential story of a controversial event. On one side is the weight of the U.S. military saying, it never happened. On the other side are the witnesses who say not only did it happen, but the government engaged in a conspirative cover-up. Making up your mind on which side is correct in this story will be challenging because both sides make persuasive and effective cases for what really happened. It is the first week of July 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico at the Army Air Force Base, Roswell Army Airfield to be exact. Less than three months from being reformed into the United States Air Force as a separate service, the Army Air Force drops an atom bomb on Roswell and the nation. Metaphorically, of course. On July 8, 1947, RAAF, that's Roswell Army Airfield, Public Information Officer First Lieutenant Walter Hott issues a press release it states personnel from the field's 509th Operations Group has recovered a flying disc which landed on a ranch near Roswell. The press release reads, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the Intelligence Office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the Sheriff's Office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. Decades later, Roswell radio announcer Frank Joyce recalled contacting Hout by telephone to verify the release. Recalled Joyce, I said, Walter, don't run this story. If you do, you're going to be in trouble. They'll ship you out to Siberia. 
I remember mentioning that because it was a common phrase in those days. Well, it was shocking news that rocked the country and made headlines around the world. It was an incredible story, to say the least. The nation was already experiencing flying saucer fever after the sighting of UFOs in Washington State by pilot Kenneth Arnold earlier that year. And now the Army had its hands on an actual flying saucer? Well, it sure seems so. After all, it was an official military press release. And those were taken for fact back in the days after World War II. But that fact wouldn't last for long. The conflict of conjecture versus what was reality was already starting. You see, the Army Air Force would soon reverse their story, providing a much more mundane explanation to the event. It was cloaked in classified security that removed the availability of more detailed information and accessibility. And that would last for decades. The 1947 Roswell incident, as it is most commonly known, is the rather mundane discovery, at least from the military's viewpoint, of metallic wood and rubber debris from a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico, by United States Army Air Force officers from Roswell Army Airfield. But conspiracy theories fueled by witness reports decades later disputed those assertions arguing the debris had extraordinary properties involving a flying saucer, alien crash victims, and that the truth had been covered up by the United States government. However, what is indisputable is that something did crash on a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico in July 1947. What it was, however, is a source of disagreement and controversy. Here's the basic story. Sometime in early July 1947, rancher W.W. W. Mac Brazel found wreckage on his sizable property in Lincoln County, New Mexico, about 75 miles north of Roswell. On Saturday night, July the 5th, Brazel made a trip from his remote ranch to the nearby town of Corona, New Mexico. Several flying discs and flying saucer stories had already appeared in the national press that summer. The ranch had no phone and no radio, leaving Brazel unaware of the flying saucer craze that was going on. When Brazel heard stories of silvery flying discs that Saturday night in Corona, he decided to gather up the wreckage he had previously found. On Sunday, July the 6th, Brazel dug out the debris, and on Monday, July the 7th, he brought some of the material to Sheriff George Wilcox in Roswell. The sheriff called Roswell Army Airfield and brought it to the attention of Colonel William Blanchard, the commanding officer of the base. The matter was then assigned to Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel. Brazel took Marcel back to the debris site and the two gathered up more pieces of the scattered wreckage. Marcel took the material home with him on that Monday night. The material was said to resemble balsa wood, rubber, and tinfoil. On Tuesday morning, July the 8th, Marcel took the material back to his base commander, Colonel Blanchard, and Blanchard reported the finding to General Roger Ramey, commander of Army Air Force 8th Air Force at Fort Worth Army Airfield. General Ramey ordered the material flown to Fort Worth Army Airfield in Texas immediately. Marcel made the flight to Fort Worth with the material gathered from the ranch. Meanwhile, in Roswell, base commander Blanchard held a staff meeting to discuss the incident and the debris. Astoundingly, the base released the news report that they had recovered a flying disc from the ranch north of Roswell. Lieutenant Walter Hott, Roswell's public information officer, later claimed Colonel Blanchard had ordered him to use that description. However, within 24 hours, there was a stunning development. 
In a complete reversal of their position regarding the Roswell debris discovery, the Army Air Force reneged on the flying saucer disclosure. The U.S. military said a mistake had been made, and military experts proclaimed that the flying saucer was a crashed weather balloon. A series of photos were published showing General Ramey, Major Marcel, and other military personnel holding some of the debris. Sure enough, it looked pretty uninspiring and was entirely consistent with the tin foil mentioned by the military in their explanation. The Roswell Morning Dispatch noted the new claim in a July 9, 1947 story entitled, Army Debunks Roswell Flying Disc as World Simmers with Excitement. However, the article also included an interview with Brazel, who did not believe that the debris he discovered was from a weather balloon. Nowadays, with the 24-7 news cycle, internet, social media, and an activist community of UFO researchers, such a claim, followed by such a reversal, would no doubt cause controversy and conspiracy theories on a massive scale. This is especially true given that the 509th Bomb Group was the only atomic bomb-capable squadron anywhere in the world at the time. Early UFO proponents found it hard to believe these elite personnel, many of whom were quite familiar with weather balloons, could be deceived in this way, leading to speculation among a few die-hard believers that a cover-up had occurred. But post-war America was very different from today, and in that calmer era that was more trusting of authority, the weather balloon explanation was almost universally believed and accepted. For a few days, the world's attention was focused on Roswell, New Mexico. But soon, while interest in flying saucers and UFOs continued to gain strength, Roswell, well, it disappeared from the narrative. Most people seemed satisfied with the military's explanation, and the story quickly faded. And that's where things stayed for over two decades. The media was convinced, the public was assured, and the years would roll by without any concern or curiosity about what happened in the New Mexico desert in 1947. But all of that would radically change in 1978 when a UFO researcher would ignite a firestorm of controversy and debate that remains with us to this very day. Many involved with the incident altered their descriptions of events over time, providing a new narrative of what had occurred at Roswell. And that narrative would provide some pretty shocking allegations of weird happenings at the ranch and at the base. And the U.S. military? It would also alter its story of what really was found in 1947, now acknowledging classified secrets that could finally be revealed to the public. But it would hardly be sufficient to dissuade conspiracy advocates within the UFO community. After the initial newspaper reports of 1947, the Roswell incident faded from public attention for more than 30 years. But the story of the Roswell UFO crash was rediscovered in 1978 by nuclear physicist-turned-ufologist Stanton T. Friedman. Friedman was tipped off that a retired military man had an interesting story to tell. And who was this mystery man? None other than Jesse Marcel, the former intel officer at Roswell Army Airfield. So, in February 1978, UFO researcher Friedman interviewed Marcel, the only person known to have accompanied the Roswell debris from where it was recovered to Fort Worth, where reporters saw material that was claimed to be part of the recovered object. In a stunning turnaround, Marcel's statements completely contradicted those he made to the press in 1947. 
Marcel told Friedman the weather balloon explanation had been a cover story and that the photos had been staged, with weather balloon debris being substituted for the real wreckage. He further claimed that everyone involved in the retrieval was clear. The object had indeed been an extraterrestrial spaceship. Well, the floodgates were now open, and over the next few years, researchers dug deeper into the mystery, tracking down many of the key players, locating potential witnesses, and attempting to piece together what happened. A number of retired military personnel who had been based at Roswell also corroborated some elements of the crashed spacecraft narrative. They added their own details, and soon the stories being told were significantly contradicting the official military account. Skeptics argued they were simply telling the researchers what they wanted to hear, writing themselves into the story either as a prank or because they were seeking attention. However, UFO researchers believed the stories and asked why former exemplary military members, including officers with solid records, would now willingly become liars and fame seekers, especially when some had made their statements as deathbed confessions. Well, either way, books were written, documentaries, drama series, and a movie were made. And the idea of a UFO crash became so embedded in popular culture that even if people had no interest or belief in UFOs, there was a good chance they had heard of Roswell. In fact, it's fair to say that without Stanton Friedman's involvement in 1978, you likely would never have heard of Roswell, either the incident or the small New Mexico town. His impact was that big, and it led to a new narrative. So here's the alternative story of the Roswell incident. In November 1979, Marcel's first filmed interview was featured in a documentary titled UFOs Are Real, co-written by Friedman. On February the 28th, 1980, sensationalist tabloid The National Enquirer brought large-scale attention to the Marcel story. And on September the 20th, 1980, the TV series In Search Of aired an interview where Marcel described his participation in the 1947 press conference. They wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. All I could do is keep my mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed, uh, told the newspapers, I mean the newsman, what it was and to forget about it. It's nothing more than a weather observation balloon. And, uh, well, of course, we both knew differently. Marcel gave a final interview to HBO's American Undercover, which aired in August of 1985. In all his statements, Marcel consistently denied the presence of bodies, but that denial certainly didn't apply to everyone. Between 1978 and the early 1990s, UFO researchers such as Stanton F. Friedman, William Moore, Carl T. Flock, and the team of Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt interviewed several dozen people who claimed to have had a connection with the events at Roswell in 1947, and a new narrative developed. It maintains the following happened. An alien craft was flying over the New Mexico desert observing U.S. nuclear weapons activity, but crashed after being hit by lightning from a severe thunderstorm in the area. And there actually was a thunderstorm at the time of the incident in the area of Brazel's ranch. Several ranchers in the area reported hearing an explosion. The craft struck the ground in the desert some 40 miles from the ranch, but was able to take off again. However, the damage was apparently too extensive. Fighting to maintain speed and altitude, eventually the flying saucer crashed horrifically on the Foster Ranch where Brazel was foreman. 
it plummeted into the ground, skidding through the dirt field and plowing a deep trough in the ground. The craft broke up to a large extent with debris scattered across a large area. The alien occupants, generally said to be five in number, were killed in the crash with the exception of one survivor. The next morning, Brazel found the trench from the crash and the strewn wreckage. But unlike rubber, balsa wood, and paper, the materials he found were very strange. Most prevalent was a material that looked like tinfoil. However, when balled up and then released, it would immediately return to its original form. It could not be torn or burned and seemed to almost have a liquid quality to it. There were also strange small light and weight beams that seemed to be made of plastic. However, they also could not be cut or burned. And eerily, they had unrecognizable hieroglyphic-like symbols on them. These materials were later described by Marcel as nothing made on this earth. Additional accounts by Bill Brazel, son of rancher Mac Brazel, neighbor Floyd Proctor, and Walt Whitman Jr., son of newsman W.E. Whitman, who had interviewed Mac Brazel, suggested the material Marcel recovered had super strength not associated with a weather balloon. Instead of just a single person, Marcel, being sent out after notification of the incident and findings by Brazel, the base sent a mass of military personnel to secure the area, turn away bystanders, retrieve every single bit of the scattered wreckage, and most importantly, recover the alien bodies. On the night of July 8th, Roswell mortician Glenn Dennis received a call from the base mortuary officer asking for five small hermetically sealed coffins and a large quantity of dry ice. Dennis also talked to a nurse he knew on the base who had seen three alien bodies in the base hospital on gurneys. The creatures were described as being three and a half to four feet tall, long arms, frail bodies, large heads, four-fingered hands, oddly spaced large eyes, small holes where ears would be, and small slits for mouths. This would become the classic description for the so-called alien greys of countless UFO stories. The bodies and sole living alien were secured aboard military aircraft and flown to Wright Field, later Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, in Dayton, Ohio. There, the dead bodies were autopsied and the living alien spirited away to an unknown location, possibly later to Area 51. So instead of a weather balloon, we get a crashed flying saucer made of strange materials, aliens retrieved, and a cover-up of the incident. This new narrative began the process of Roswell becoming synonymous with UFOs and aliens, and much of it began with the book, The Roswell Incident, published in 1980. The book's authors, Charles Berlitz and William L. Moore, labeled the weather balloon explanation a cover story. They argued the original debris, which they believed was from a crashed flying saucer, had been flown to Wright Field, and material from a weather balloon was hastily substituted to throw the press off and calm the public. The book was embraced by many, but also derided as well, with critics saying the authors believed and then printed lies and hoaxes. Ironically, Berlitz and Moore were right about one thing. The government's claim that a weather balloon crashed at Roswell was incorrect and was, in fact, a cover story. So, in 1994, the Air Force attempted to respond to the conspiracy theorists and UFO community by issuing a final statement on the Roswell incident. Their report was thorough 
and took on all aspects of the pervasive rumors and speculations. But would it be enough to satisfy those that believed the government had withheld information at the very least, and flat-out lied about the incident at the worst? For decades, many UFO researchers were skeptical of the government's changed account. But by the 1990s, the Air Force was growing tired of all the talk of Roswell, flying saucers, aliens, and conspiracies, and it decided to do something about it. After United States congressional inquiries, the General Accounting Office launched an inquiry and directed the Office of the United States Secretary of the Air Force to conduct an internal investigation. The result was summarized in two reports. In July 1994, the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force concluded an exhaustive search for records in response to the General Accounting Office inquiry of the event popularly known as the Roswell Incident. The focus of the GAO probe, initiated at the request of a member of Congress, was to determine if the U.S. Air Force or any other U.S. government agency possessed information on the alleged crash and recovery of an extraterrestrial vehicle and its alien occupants near Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947. The report concluded the material recovered in 1947 was likely debris from Project Mogul, a military surveillance program employing high-altitude balloons and the classified portion of an unclassified New York University project by atmospheric researchers. The deployed devices, a connected string of high-altitude balloons equipped with microphones, was designed to float stealthily over the USSR, detecting sound waves at a covert distance. These balloons would presumably monitor the Soviet government's attempts at testing their own atom bomb. Because Project Mogul was a covert operation, the new report claimed a false explanation of the crash was necessary to prevent giving away details of their spy work. The Air Force, in effect, was saying openly that the weather balloon story had been fictitious and deliberately invented to mislead the public. Most scholars agreed, and a consensus emerged concluding the military decided to conceal the true purpose of the crashed vehicle, nuclear test monitoring, and instead informed the public the crash was of a weather balloon. In 1997, the second Air Force report entitled The Roswell Report, Case Closed, sought to conclusively put an end to the unsubstantiated reports and rumors surrounding the existence of alien bodies. It concluded reports of recovered alien bodies were likely a combination of innocently transformed memories of accidents involving military casualties. The report stated an opinion that stories of alien bodies may have come from civilian witnesses who saw parachute crash test dummies that were carried aloft by U.S. Air Force high-altitude balloons for scientific research, a severely injured airman parachutist, and charred bodies from an airplane crash during the 1950s. Claims of alien bodies at the Roswell Army Airfield Hospital were most likely a combination of two separate incidents a 1956 KC-97 aircraft accident in which 11 Air Force members lost their lives, and a 1959 manned balloon mishap in which two Air Force pilots were injured. The report proposed witnesses consolidated the separate events, the Project Mogul materials, the crash test dummies, the airmen, and the charred bodies in their memories. 
The unusual reports of military units that always seem to arrive shortly after the crash of a flying saucer to retrieve the saucer and crew were actually accurate descriptions of Air Force personnel engaged in dummy recovery operations. In the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired as much fascination and speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico. Roger Lanius, a historian and retired curator for the Division of Space History at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, says those two Air Force reports close most of the remaining questions about Roswell. This story has been resolved, Lanius said. Has absolutely every question been answered? I can't say that. But I'm not sure that there are significant holes. You do not divulge state secrets in the context of national security. My surmise is they probably saw the initial flying saucer explanation as a useful cover story. Donald Schmidt, a UFO researcher who has spent nearly three decades investigating the Roswell incident and is the co-founder of the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, says that explanation makes little sense. The flying saucer story, he contends, was so outrageous that it was bound to draw attention to the area with its sensitive military operations at the time. Two hours west of Roswell, the first atomic bomb was detonated. You had ongoing atomic research at Los Alamos. You had all this testing of captured German V-2 rockets at White Sands. And at Roswell, you had the first atomic bomb squadron headquartered, Schmidt said. The thought that they would have intentionally set up any type of publicity as a distraction? If anything, they needed less attention. For all its candor, explanations, and new release documents, the Air Force didn't put a dent in the continuing conviction of believers that the Roswell incident had really happened. For many UFOlogists, the reports were seen as part of a continued cover-up by the U.S. government. Instead of solving the mystery, the report stoked the flames of conspiracy allegations. Now, 75 years later, the story refuses to die. A simple search of the internet brings up dozens of sites. Podcasts are devoted to the incident, and YouTube channels carry on the story and the conjectures. But behind all the UFO mania lies an uneasy truth. The events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut. With admitted cover-ups, and conflicting explanations as well as outright hoaxes on both sides of the argument. It was a saucer. It was a weather balloon. It was a military spy craft. It was the Soviets. It was aliens. It was the U.S. military. It seemed to be anything and everything all at once. While the official explanation of what crashed on Brazel's ranch had made sense to the public and the media in 1947, and were accepted shortly after the event. After 1978, that was no longer the case. The problem was, there were numerous purported witnesses who said otherwise, and had yet to have their say regarding events. And beginning in the 1970s, the ufology community was beginning to put forth a very different account based on these new witnesses coming forward to tell what they knew. In part two of this story, you'll hear what those witnesses have had to say over the years, and they paint a very different picture of what happened in 1947, chilling in both its account and its implications. Postscript 
In their book, The Roswell Incident, Charles Berlitz and William Moore claim to have interviewed over 90 witnesses, though the testimony of only 25 appear in the book. Only seven of those people claim to have seen the debris, and of these, five claim to have handled it. It was the first book to introduce the controversial second-hand stories of civil engineer Grady Barney Barnett and a group of archaeology students from an unidentified university encountering wreckage and alien bodies while on the plains of San Augustine before being escorted away by the army. The second-hand Barnett stories and the book were widely disputed. They sparked additional conspiracy theories as well as a number of hoaxes. Notably, in 1984, documents surfaced that were alleged to be classified memos concerning a secret operation called Majestic 12, or MJ-12 for short. MJ-12 was alleged to have been launched by President Harry S. Truman to handle the Roswell incident. The documents, however, were later determined to be fake, and no evidence has ever been found to support the existence of an MJ-12 group. Well, in our next episode, we conclude our two-part look into the iconic Roswell, New Mexico UFO crash as witnesses begin coming forward to dispute the official government explanation of the Roswell incident. As years and decades roll by, more alleged witnesses begin to talk about what they saw and experienced, yet skeptics step in to call those reports false and misleading. What did these new witnesses describe? Are they trustworthy accounts and should they be believed? And what do the skeptics say in challenge to them? Join us as we conclude our look into the Roswell incident next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. It is time for the quiz, so here we go. What two iconic U.S. structures were destroyed by flying saucers in the film Earth vs. the Flying Saucers? Was it A... Mount Rushmore and the St. Louis Arch. B. The Pentagon and Lincoln Memorial. C. The Golden Gate and San Francisco Bay Bridges. D. The Washington Monument and the Capitol Building. Once again, what two iconic U.S. structures were destroyed by flying saucers in the film Earth vs. the Flying Saucers? Was it Mount Rushmore and the St. Louis Arch? The Pentagon and Lincoln Memorial? the Golden Gate and San Francisco Bay Bridges, or the Washington Monument and the Capitol Building? And the answer is... D. The Washington Monument and the Capitol Building. The villainous flying saucers were all over the place in this 1956 science fiction film, so you can certainly be forgiven for picking any of those answers. However, it was the Washington Monument and Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. that were both famously destroyed in the movie. Long before the cinematic miracles of industrial light and magic and the process of CGI, movie special effects were usually done with miniatures, and no one was better at them, especially in horror, sci-fi, and fantasy movies, than special effects master Ray Harryhausen. Harryhausen created the stop-motion animation special effects for such films as The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Mysterious Island, Jason and the Argonauts, and One Million Years B.C. In Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, he used stop-motion animation to create the fantastic scenes of the alien flying spacecraft and the severe damage they create. 
For increased realism in the scenes depicting saucers crashing into monuments and government buildings, he also animated falling masonry as they toppled to the ground. The film's iconic flying saucer design, a stationary central cabin encircled by a rotating outer ring with slotted vanes in it, matches eyewitness descriptions recorded by Major Donald Kehoe in his best-selling non-fiction book about UFOs. At a tribute to Harryhausen held in Sydney, Australia, the animator said that he consulted with well-known 1950s UFO contactee George Adamski about the depiction of the flying saucers in the film. Many of Hollywood's greatest directors have said Harryhausen was an inspiration for their filmmaking, including Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, J.J. Abrams, Tim Burton, and Peter Jackson. Ray Harryhausen, a genius innovator and genuine special effects movie legend. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.